welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Morning, church. Please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Last week, we contrasted two very different wisdoms. The wisdom from below, that which is directly from the devil, and the wisdom from above, that which comes directly from God. As we think back on that passage of Scripture, it is interesting to note that James only gives two options. You are either wise, visibly living a genuinely obedient life saturated by meekness, or you are unwise, living to elevate your own interests. The fact that there are only two wisdoms, only two ways of living, only two possible paths, is a sobering reality. James never really gives a third option. Throughout his letter, he consistently makes it clear that the way you are living your life right now is either faithful or unfaithful, being a hearer who forgets or a doer who acts, showing partiality or or loving your neighbor as yourself, blessing others with your speech or cursing them, having either a living faith or a dead faith. In James chapter 4, we will be challenged again with the striking difference between these two paths or ways of living. Ultimately, James will declare in verse 4, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, is a warning to the church of God, a warning to make sure that we do not live for this world. We will look at three images in this passage that I believe will best help us visualize the seriousness of James' warning and then how we are to respond The first image is that of a raging war. The second, an adulterous wife. But the third is a repentant child. Before we start, let's ask our Heavenly Father for his help as we receive his word. Let's pray. Lord God, the Almighty, please help us as we hear your word. Help us see the war for our souls that is raging. Help us feel the offensiveness of our sin. And then give overwhelming joy, hope, and peace to all those who come to you with humility and repentance and faith. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 3 together. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We see in these verses that James continues a similar theme to what we saw last week in the final section of chapter 3. In that passage, some in the church claimed to be wise and understanding, but their manner of life stirred up disorder and sinful practices. James said that the root cause of this disorder in the church was their passion or zeal for their own elevation, their selfish ambition. 
And now in chapter 4, we will hear more specifically about this inner battle that has relational and eternal consequences. James begins verse 1 with the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? These two words, quarrels and fights, are both military terms and language. The image that James is putting before the reader is one of battle and war. In fact, the word quarrels is the Greek word polemos. And out of the 18 times it is used in the New Testament, 17 times it is translated war or battle. This is the only time some translations clarify for the reader that this is infighting within the church. Thus, quarrels. Sometimes in language, we casually use military language to describe everyday life. That was quite the battle of wits. The children loved playing tug of war. Lionel Messi fought hard for that goal. It's my favorite soccer player. Sorry. That is not how James is using this military language. Instead, James is emphasizing the unnatural and devastating nature of these battles that were doing so much violence in the church of God. Looking back at verse 1, it says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? This question is phrased in a way that makes it clear that this is the reason that these battles continue to break out in the church. It is because of the war that is raging within each one of us. This word passions specifically means pleasures or your desire for pleasures. It comes from the Greek word hedomai and is where we get our English word hedonism, a life devoted to pleasure. So there are these passions or desires for pleasure at war within us, but what are they fighting against? What are these desires raging against? What are they trying to overcome? This verse in James is very similar to a challenge found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, which will give us some more clarity. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. These passions of the flesh are desires to pursue after the things that God has told us bring death. These passions wage war against our souls, that part of us that the Spirit of God is changing into the image of His Son. So when James says that your passions are at war within you, he is saying that your desire for sinful pleasures is waging war against your desire and love for God. Verse 2 shows us how these sinful passions play out. It says you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. When people pursue Sinful passions wholeheartedly, every vile practice becomes possible, even to the extent of murdering the one who gets in the way. It's not entirely clear why James uses the word murder here. It is possible that someone in the church community had indeed been killed during a dispute with another person. 
but more likely James is pricking the conscience of his readers by pointing out the end result of their unrestrained pursuit of sinful pleasures. Surely they could see it all around them in the world. If they continue down this path of sinful desire and covetousness, every vile practice will avail itself to them, resulting in disorder, fighting, and even death. At the end of verse 2, and then continuing into verse 3, James makes a very interesting shift in his thought. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So let's take a step back. We have this local church, our family. The members are constantly breaking out and fighting and quarreling. James has told us that the root cause of this visible outward fighting is a problem with our hearts. Our desire for sinful pleasure is waging war against our desire and love for God. And when my sinful desires are not being fulfilled, then it must be the fault of those around me. If only my boss paid me more, then I would be happy. Why must she be so selfish? I deserve this. How can he not see my potential? If only these people respected me more, If my children would just get their acts straight, then I could have a moment's peace. I could do so much better than that. I can't believe he didn't thank me for all my hard work today. Can't she stop nagging me for one second? Doesn't she know I worked hard today and deserve to put my feet up? Several of these examples listed are not sinful in and of themselves. It is good to receive an increase in pay, lots of intimacy and marriage, opportunities for service, obedient children, thanks, and rest. But when these good gifts from God become the thing we desire most, something we desire more than obeying and pleasing God, they become an idol of our hearts. We are worshiping the gifts rather than the one who gave them resulting in disorder and bitter fighting. Then in verses 2 and 3, James confronts his reader with two realities. First, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Their passions were frustrated because entire days were spent pursuing the desires of their heart without once looking up to the God of heaven who proclaims to us that he is the one that will give us everything we need. Second, James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. These believers were still frustrated in their pursuits because even when they did pause for a moment and send up a prayer to heaven, it was only to ask for heavenly help to get the newest idol of their heart. James says they ask wrongly. They miss the purpose and heart of prayer. And in fact, they, were, they are asking for more fuel to be thrown on the flames of their worldly passions. 
Before we go any further, though, I do want to emphasize something. Prayer is a wonderful blessing from God. The Father tells us that we are to go boldly before his throne. That the Son of God is our advocate and intercessor in prayer. And that the Spirit of God helps us even when we do not know how to pray. We are to go before the Lord with our requests and our petitions. This passage in James is specifically addressing requests that in reality combat the work of God in our lives. That are against his will and purpose. Requests that do not further his glory, his kingdom, his purposes, and in the end would only result in our destruction, not our good. I also want to clarify that there are many reasons why prayers may go unanswered. Your prayers may be good and right, but they do not align with God's timing or his bigger purpose. Not all unanswered prayers are the result of sinful desires. But the point James is making is that far too often our prayers align more with acquiring the stuff of this world rather than seeking first the kingdom of God. Last week, I asked you all the same question I had first asked myself. What is the motivator of our zeal, our passion, a love for God, his glory, his kingdom, his people? Or does my passion lay elsewhere? Does my heart long for the same things to be found in the same places that the rest of this lost world longs for? The very things that God says lead to brokenness, violence, and death. In verses 1 through 3, James has helped us see the cause of much of the brokenness in our lives. The image of a raging war within us. The war fought between our desires for sinful pleasures and our desire and love for God. But in verses 4 and 5, James changes to another image that helps us appropriately feel the offensiveness of living for this world. It is the image of an adulterous wife. He says in verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? This phrase, you adulterous people, is originally in the Greek, you adulteresses, clearly specifying the feminine noun. Some translations help the reader by clarifying that the following rebuke is for unfaithful men and women by saying adulterous people. But James is specifically using the feminine now to stir up a well-known image in the minds of his Jewish readers. In the Old Testament, unfaithful Israel was repeatedly compared to an adulterous wife. One example is found in Jeremiah 3. The entire chapter contains this imagery, but verse 20 states it clearly. Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. The people of Israel are also given the entire book of Hosea, which graphically depicts their unfaithfulness 
calling them to turn from worshiping other gods and return to God, their faithful, covenant-keeping God, covenant-keeping husband. With this understanding, we can better comprehend James' message in verse 4. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Here, James declares that friendship with this world is equivalent to the idol worship of the Israelites in the Old Testament. This phrase, friendship with the world, carries with it the idea of affection, fondness, and love for the sinful pleasures of this fallen world. In 1 John 2.16, we're given this description of the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. James is stating his accusation in these verses in no uncertain terms. To the extent that we fulfill the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, we are getting in bed with this world, like an unfaithful wife betraying her husband. Verse 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In the Old Testament, Israel wouldn't usually completely cast off their worship of Yahweh. They were much more likely to dilute and mix the worship of the one true God with the worship of other deities that were popular among the pagan nations around them. There were times in their history when it would have been common for an Israelite to one month offer sacrifices at the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem, and then afterwards to stop by the hilltop by a hilltop and burn incense under a sacred tree to a pagan deity. This was then wrapped up by going home and praying to Baal at the local shrine for abundance of crops and rain. Israel's history was filled with this desire to change God, add to God, take away from God, or relegate God to being one lover among many. But God says to his people, I will not share my bride with another. The unrepentant pursuit of the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life produces enmity hostility, and opposition with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We must let this warning stand. If any one of us fully resolves and plans in our heart to unrepentantly get in bed with this world, then our so-called faith is on sinking sand. James says you have made yourself an enemy of God. It's as if you stood in the middle of a vast field between two armies. To your left, with great pomp and pride, colorful banners, and untold pagan delights, stands the battle lines of the army of this world. To your right, arrayed in the armor of faith, is God's people here on earth his church. 
And in front of his forces stands the risen Christ, the Son of God, with the nails in his hands and feet, with the, 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 the holes from the nails in his hands and feet, and a wound in his side. He is calling to you. Follow me. Be faithful to me. Reject the sinful pleasures of this world. Be ready to suffer and die for me in this world. And I will give you life in me. Life that is so abundant and free that you cannot even fully imagine it. How are you, how am I daily responding to this plea? Do you spend most of your days in the encampment of the enemy? In hostility against the Savior? If any one of us fully resolves and plans in our heart to unrepentantly get in bed with this world, then we are making ourselves out to be the enemies of God. The scriptures are clear. No one who has been saved by God, made into this new creation in Christ Jesus, continues unrepentantly in sin. We cannot unrepentantly love this world. 1 John 2.15 says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And again in chapter 3, verse 9, it says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. James finishes his charge with a pointed question in verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose, says He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. What James is quoting and the meaning of spirit in this passage are both debated, but I believe the meaning is clear. God is rightfully a jealous God. After all, he created us. And he will not let those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit continue in sin indefinitely. If you are currently living in unrepentant sin, then there are only two options, only two possibilities. The first possibility is that you are a child of God who is about to face a reckoning. God is about to correct your path, sometimes painfully, for God will discipline and love every one of his children. The only other possibility is that you are not his child but are content to deceive yourself, destined for condemnation on the day of the Lord, to be eternally separated from God in hell. These paths are the only two possibilities for the unrepentant sinner. But God in his grace instructs us and calls us to live before him another way. He calls us to humbly live before him as a repentant child. Verse 6 says, But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You may be sitting here today fully aware and burdened by the fact that you are guilty of allowing your passions to war against the Spirit of God, of pursuing the passions of the flesh. But I tell you that you can have joy because God gives grace to the humble. His grace has made a way for you to be forgiven. His grace offers you peace with God. His grace gives the power to obey his commands. And his grace will exalt you if you humbly come to him in faith as a repentant child. What does humble repentance and faith look like? It looks a lot like the parable of the prodigal son. In Luke 15, Jesus tells the parable of a son who despised and rejected his loving father, running off with his inheritance and spending it on the pleasures of this world. But when his money ran out, his so-called friends forsook him, and he came to the point of nearly starving to death. God used this young man's brokenness to humble him. What did his repentance look like? First, he willingly submitted himself to his father. He would obey his father, even if it meant losing his sonship, his position in the father's house, and becoming even a servant. The repentant son also resisted the devil. He identified the lie of the devil, the lie that his happiness, worth, and purpose were to be found in the tainted pleasures of this life. We must resist the devil through identifying his lies and proclaiming the truth of God's word to ourselves every day. The repentant son then drew near to his father. He returned from his wanderings to the house of his father, and to his great surprise and delight, he saw his father drawing near to him. The father did not casually approach. He was not cautious. But instead, the father ran to him and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The father was ready, waiting, looking and longing earnestly for his son's return. It was then that the son, the prodigal son, repentant son, says these words, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Do not for one second imagine the scene as one that is stoic and dignified. This is a young man who is crushed under the weight of his sin against his father. He is cleansing his hands and purifying his heart through confessing his sins and turning away from them to seek his father. He is wretched and miserable. He is mourning and weeping. 
His laughter and joy in his own wickedness have turned to gloom and dejection because he supremely values the one he has offended and betrayed. This is what it means to to humble yourself before the Lord. There is no thought for self-respecting pride or dignity. A truly repentant child desires only to be fully restored into the love of his father. What is the response of the father to his child's repentance? He raised him up. He was so ready to forgive that he didn't even say it with words. The response of the father is that he exalted his son, his child. It says in verse 22 of Luke 15, But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Our heavenly father says he will do the same for you. Do not doubt his generosity. You cannot exhaust his love. Do not make him out to be like you and me. He has promised to cast your sins from you as far as the east is from the west, a distance that cannot be measured. Whether you have been lost without God your whole life, or you have been saved since you were a little child, whether you are nine years old or 90, the response to indwelling sin is the same. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he, the Son of God, is the Savior of the world, and your only hope for deliverance from the bondage and penalty of sin. Before leaving here today, I want to encourage all of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that there is hope for having victory in your battle, in my battle, against the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. I'm not talking about death or the Lord's return, although those both will bring an absolute end to our battle with the flesh. Praise God. What I'm talking about is how to have life and have it abundantly. How to experience genuine, heartfelt victories over the flesh in this life, in this life. The only way to truly put to death the love of this world is to replace it with a greater love. A greater love for God and his ways. God is not saying that we love too much. He is telling us that our little loves are pathetic, sad, and ultimately empty. God says throughout his word that we are way too easily satisfied. Way too quick to eat the muck of the pig trough. 
rather than feasting at his table. Way too quick to be pacified by the internet rather than claiming the treasures of a godly marriage. Way too quick to experience acts of valor and bravery by watching a movie rather than gathering our courage and bravely leading a home, fearlessly fighting in the battle for your child's soul, boldly denying the world the chance to corrupt another family. And in in the end, receiving the reward now of our labor and then eternally forever with God. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book, The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Brothers, sisters, do not be pleased. Do not be satisfied with anything less than having the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteousness, and all the promises and blessings that are to be found in him and in his way. Let's pray. Lord God, the Almighty, thank you for not leaving us to our own way. Thank you, Jesus, for loving your church, your bride, and for giving yourself up for her on the cross, for sanctifying us, having cleansed us by the washing of water with the word. We long for the day when you will present the church to yourself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, that we might be holy and without blemish. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.